there's a lot more money flowing into early stage technology startups like ours that are solving really hard hardware related problems related to climate and energy, including the grid. And I'd say, you know, one of the interesting things that was a clear observation from my time at Breakthrough was we think the grid is really hard. We think that utilities struggle to adopt new technologies quickly, mostly because of those concerns around safety and reliability. Welcome to the Wharton Current. This is your host, Ned Downey. I'm a PhD student in public affairs at Princeton, focusing on the low carbon transition in Asia. In this episode, Adriel Barrett-Johnson and I sat down with Tim Heidel, CTO at Veer, a Boston-based startup that's developing breakthrough technologies for the transmission sector. Little background first, transmission is the highway of the power grid. We rely on transmission cables to take large volumes of power from power plants to end users. That's factories, that's houses, malls, anyone and anything using power from the grid. And the low carbon transition means that we'll be relying on it more than ever in years to come. Studies suggest that the U.S. will need anywhere from two to five times more transmission capacity by mid-century than we have today. But if expanding transmission is becoming more important, it's also becoming harder. To build a new transmission line often involves years of work, acquiring rights of way, obtaining permits. Everyone wants clean energy, but not everyone wants a large transmission tower near their backyard. And the problem is you can't have clean energy if you can't build the transmission. This is where Veer comes in. They're developing a new generation of transmission lines using high temperature superconductors and passive cryogenic cooling to carry five times as much power than existing lines for a given voltage. What this means is the ability to carry lots, lots more power in existing transmission corridors. It also means the ability to develop new corridors with smaller rights of way that can be easier to permit. Tim will tell you all about this technology, what it offers, and how Veer hopes to bring it to market. He'll also share his own journey in clean tech, from an MIT PhD to government and venture capital, and now to Veer. He's got a few thoughts on the state of clean tech financing today as well. So let's hear what he has to say. This is Adriel Barrett-Johnson, your host of the Wharton Current, and today I am joined by Ned Downey, my co-host, who's completing his PhD at Princeton in Public Policy. Thanks, Adriel. We're thrilled to have as our guest today, Dr. Tim Heidel, CTO of Veer, a Boston-based startup developing a new generation of high-temperature superconductor-based transmission lines. Transmission is a huge and often overlooked bottleneck for scaling up clean power. And Tim will share with us today how his company is looking to help us break through this bottleneck and accelerate the low-carbon transition. So, Tim, welcome to the Wharton Current. Great. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. Can you start by telling us more about your background and how you ended up at Veer today? Sure. I'm an electrical engineer as trained and did undergrad through PhD at MIT, where I had the opportunity right at the end of my tenure at MIT to lead the 2011 Future of the Grid study that MIT published. So I led the research efforts for that, where we really spent some time interviewing a large number of stakeholders throughout the electric utility industry on challenges that the grid was likely to face in the next 20 or or 30 years. And believe it or not, even at that point, we didn't know how fast and how far things were going to change in the decades ahead. And so you look at that study now, and it's actually very modest compared to current studies that we see today on the, the pace of change that's required here. From there, I spent five years as a program director at ARPA-E with the Department of Energy managing research projects, uh, mostly focused on power electronics, 
and on technologies related to the electric grid, both hardware and software innovations. And it was a fantastic place to manage over 75 research projects throughout the country at everything from small startups to large companies to universities and national labs. I really get a sense of how energy technology development research is done effectively throughout the country. From there, I spent a short time with the trade association that represents rural co-op utilities, NRECA, and helped to lead some of the R&D efforts on a national basis on behalf of co-ops and co-op members, and then ended up as a venture capital investor at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is the climate change-focused venture capital fund that was started by Bill Gates. And was there for about three years before we launched Veer out of the fund. We launched Veer about two and a half years ago, and I've been serving as the chief technology officer ever since. Wonderful. And how did you decide to launch a company in transmission specifically among all the challenges in the grid? I think a lot of folks are familiar with a large number of decarbonization studies that have been performed really all over the world in the last two decades. And as you review all of those studies, the headlines you often see are about the quantity of renewable generation that's required and the cost of solar or the cost of wind that's going to be required. You often also see a lot of headlines around energy storage and how much energy storage are we going to need and what type of energy storage. It turns out the vast majority of those studies also conclude you need a huge amount of transmission. And yet, for some reason, that was never the result that got highlighted. And for a long time, people really underestimated the importance of transmission that was staring right at you in a lot of those reports that have been published. And I think that transmission had become a little bit more well-recognized in the last couple of years. We looked at those studies and said, well, this is really going to be a major bottleneck, right? A lot of the decarbonization studies indicate that we need to double or triple the scale of transmission networks throughout the globe to achieve decarbonization targets. And yet at the same time, transmission is only getting harder and harder to build. In fact, when you talk to a lot of utilities in Europe today, they will tell you that the window of opportunity for building new transmission lines in new overhead right-of-ways is closing or has already closed. In fact, in some places we've heard it's now illegal to deploy new transmission lines overhead. Uh, of course, transmission lines face a tremendous amount of public opposition for a whole bunch of reasons. And nobody likes tall towers and wide right-of-ways. And so we looked at those two facts. We need to build an enormous amount of transmission in the next couple decades. And yet using conventional technology, transmission is only becoming harder and harder and more and more costly to build, right? The timeline to build a new transmission line today is potentially eternity for a lot of projects, right? We've, we've seen very large development efforts for projects that have ultimately failed and been abandoned in, you know, not just specialized circumstances, but it's really in a lot of different geographies and a lot of different contexts. So we said, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of folks who are proposing transmission planning improvements, policy improvements, and those are all going to be really important. But we said, well, we don't want to rely on that being successful alone. Is there a way that we can change the course of transmission development using technology? ultimately found a new approach to building and deploying high temperature superconducting transmission lines that we think has the promise to really break open the way that we build and deploy transmission with far less visual impact and far fewer delays. Got so excited about it, we decided we just had to start a company around it. 
one thing that I've been very interested in is, is hearing you share a little bit more about what your technology does, what high temperature superconductors and other aspects of technology do to change those circumstances, and especially how it's different from what's come before. Because my understanding is, at least, is that there has been some amount of transmission deployed with high temperature superconductors and liquid nitrogen to cool up some of the things you guys have in some commercial products so far. So what's new about Veer? What are you guys doing? And how is it different from what's come before? So high temperature superconductors have been proposed as a holy grail for transmission for at least three decades. Fundamentally, so for those that are not familiar, high temperature superconductors are a class of materials that when you cool them down to a certain temperature, they cease to exhibit resistance. You may remember from basic physics classes that losses in conductors are driven by the current squared times the resistance. So if your resistance goes to zero, you no longer have losses. And that means that you don't have heat generation in those conductors. And that means you can drive those conductors to far higher current levels than is possible with current conductor technologies. So conventional conductors, either aluminum or copper, often they're, they're a composite of aluminum and steel. As you push more and more current through those conductors, the losses are increasing exponentially. That means that the heat generation is increasing exponentially. And you rely on the local environment to remove that heat from the conductor. And the wind and the local conduction into the environment can only remove so much heat. So you ultimately reach a point where you can't push any more current through that conductor for fear of permanently damaging the materials. Superconductors don't have that challenge, right? So this has been known for a very long time. And there have actually been about two dozen grid-connected demonstration projects over the last two decades using superconductors around the world. And the vast majority of those projects have been 100% technically successful. Unfortunately, none of them have been commercially viable. A whole bunch of reasons why they haven't been. It's important to note the cost of the superconducting material itself is still quite high. So that has driven high costs. But beyond that, our view at Veer is the cooling system approach that had been utilized in these previous designs was not something that could scale cost-effectively or reliably to long distance. A lot of those previous demonstration projects were short-distance underground transmission lines, and we believe that you know, fundamentally the, the approach to cooling that they were using would limit you to deployments that are maybe up to 10 miles, but you really aren't going to stretch beyond that. So, so Veer's technology is fundamentally a new cooling architecture for superconducting transmission lines that relies on distributed evaporation of liquid nitrogen over the continuous distance of our transmission lines. And there's a lot of details that we won't get into here, but suffice it to say, this new cooling approach allows us to reduce the amount of flowing liquid nitrogen that we need in our transmission lines. That allows us to reduce the size and weight of the entire assembly. We need to flow liquid nitrogen as our coolant through the lines to keep the superconductors at the temperature required for operation. And when we shrink the size and weight of those pipes, we now believe it's going to be feasible to deploy overhead. And so we can use a lot of the same processes we've always used for designing transmission lines overhead. We also vastly simplify the operation of the cooling system. Traditional superconducting transmission lines required mechanical refrigeration systems that had to be duplicated every five to 10 miles of line length. Those systems are not particularly high reliability. And so we replace all of those systems with passive heat exchangers. 
We don't require any of the mechanical refrigeration systems required in previous systems, which we believe allows us to achieve much higher reliability over much longer distances. And really for the first time, we think we, we can make superconducting transmission relevant to long distance bulk transmission applications. So it sounds like from what you're saying, the strength on why you guys could be commercially viable has to do with some of these changes in the technology. Can you be just a little more specific about what it is that's going to make you guys commercially viable when your predecessors in this weren't before? Historical approaches to maintaining the temperature required for high temperature superconducting transmission lines required underground deployment and required mechanical refrigeration systems that were duplicated every five to 10 kilometers of wide length. Our cooling approach allows us to eliminate those mechanical refrigeration systems, replacing them with passive heat exchangers, and reduce the amount of coolant flow required such that we now can shrink the size of all the components to enable overhead deployment over much longer distances. Amazing, that's pretty exciting stuff. With this big expansion of transmission and the ability to scale up at commercially competitive costs, what are the materials that are going to be required for that? And what is your expectation on how those will be sourced? So there's two major material components to our system that we spend a lot of time focusing on. The first is the high temperature superconducting tapes themselves. So to be clear, we don't manufacture those tapes. Those are available from vendors commercially around the world. And that industry is scaling up very, very rapidly right now. Driven by a number of different applications, a lot of the fusion energy community has now started to shift over to using high temperature superconducting tapes. So that's driving a lot of volume increase. And we think fundamentally that is a process that will scale. The materials are widely, widely available. The materials are fairly inexpensive and tape costs should fall. Um, and it really, the reason they've, they've remained as high as they've been for as long as they've been is the applications have just never really shown up. And so you need applications that can drive very high, high volumes. Fusion is one of those applications and the, the work in the fusion community in the last couple of years has already started to dramatically reduce the cost of those tapes. Transmission is the other. So our individual projects will ultimately drive massive amounts of volume in on the production side of those tapes. We're confident that the industry is going to scale. A lot of the vendors have very high quality tapes that are widely available and they've really started to master long distance fabrication techniques. There's, there's obviously room to grow and continue to mature, but we're pretty happy about that. The other major component of our system are vacuum insulated pipes. And so these are, are readily available. They are a mature technology that are deployed in a lot of industrial environments, oil and gas facilities, food processing facilities, refineries, but generally they are designed and built and sold on a project basis with modest lengths compared to what we ultimately think we will deploy, right? So a big project may be 10,000 feet of pipe. And our transmission projects will ultimately use at least an order of magnitude larger than that amount. And so there's going to be a need to be scaling there. You know, I think our strategy is to try to work with the existing vendors for those pipes and figure out who is going to have the capability and interest to scale with us as we start to go out to the market. But we will have to scale that up. We don't see any real material challenges with that, but it certainly is a challenge we'll have to overcome. And just real quick there, I'm assuming when you say take, you're not talking about like the scotch tape I use to package a gift. 
No, superconductors are a highly engineered multi-layer material set. They typically are fabricated on some sort of a metal substrate with various ceramic layers involved. They're typically sold in four millimeter wide widths. And so you can think about this as a four millimeter wide flat tape. And what we do is we take those tapes and we combine a large number of them into a cable that will ultimately be capable of carrying a very high current. And in terms of the metals required for that, what metals are required and are you going to be competing for those with other technologies in the energy transition that are really metal heavy? So metal availability is not something we've spent an enormous amount of time worrying about so far. They're fairly common materials. It's steel and typically there's, there's a copper or aluminum cladding that's involved. These are not, you know, exotic metals or, or specialty metals, uh, like some folks worry about in the battery market. But of course, commodity materials are always a concern. And so, you know, will we run into shortages of copper a decade from now? Are we going to be concerned about global copper? That I did see a report recently that that's going to be a major concern going forward. So it's something we'll monitor, but it's not, it's not something that I'd say keeps us up at night today. Good. I'm glad there'll be enough lithium left over for, for the batteries. Zooming back up to the, the product as a whole, where are you guys right now at the product development process? What timeframes are you imagining for scaling? And you know, what kind of markets would you potentially look to scale in? So we started the company about two and a half years ago. And the initial period of the company when we were really, really small, we started with, with four people, was kicking the tires on the fundamental concept, doing a lot of simulation, a lot of analytical work to really understand the physics of things like liquid nitrogen flow over long distances, heat transfer efficiency within the realm of the process conditions we, we need to achieve. Make sure there weren't any obvious showstoppers to getting the whole technology to work. When we completed that effort, we raised a, a Series A. We ended up raising $12 million Series A fundraising to allow us to start to build and validate the performance of prototypes of all the hardware involved, focusing primarily on the cryogenics. The cooling system design is really the most novel piece of what we've been developing. That's what we wanted to retire most of the technical risk in first. And so we're deep in the trenches, building those first prototypes, testing them, starting to rapidly iterate. Our goal is to stand up an, a demonstration of all the cooling components early next year. And so that'll be a short distance demonstration. It will all be at low voltage, but it really proves the operation of all of the cooling components. And that we think really unlocks the ability to go out and start to really design products that could be fielded, focusing on high voltage, focusing on long lifetimes, focusing on installation, repair procedures, safety procedures. A lot of that work is what we'll spend an enormous amount of time working on starting in, into next year. We think we could be ready to deploy first projects, certainly by the end of this decade. You know, I think 2027 is something we've been focusing a lot on. That would probably be fairly modest power levels at that point. So it might be a 35 kV class. It looks like a distribution line, but it has the power capacity of a transmission line. In general, our transmission lines will offer five times the amount of power in the same right-of-way space as conventional conductors. And so at the same voltage, we expect our transmission lines to be capable of carrying five to 10 times more power without changing the width of the right-of-way or the height of the towers. 
That sounds pretty promising. I'm curious when you guys think about where you fit as technology providers versus as project developers in this process. Do you think that you would be your you'd have clients as utilities that you're selling to sort of support them in deploying their own lines? Or could you guys become merchant transmission developers yourself? So the business model is one we're working on and spending a lot of time thinking about now. And, and the reality is it's it's likely to vary by geography. There are different regulatory environments, different industry structures, both within different regions in the U.S. as well as internationally. And so as we think about where transmission is most constrained in Europe or where transmission is growing fastest in places like India and Brazil, it may well make sense to use a different business model in those different markets to achieve maximum scale. We, you know, we think that our, our technology will bring a tremendous amount of value by unlocking the ability to build transmission lines that in many cases you're not going to be able to build any other way. So if you've got a constrained right of way, if you're in an urban environment, you've exhausted all of your right-of-way options and using conventional technology, you really can't get much of an increase in power through the same right-of-ways that you've already been using. You may have the option of going underground, which is much more expensive than deployment overhead, or a technology like ours can enable you to rebuild or reconductor an existing right-of-way and substantially increase the amount of power through that. So in some cases, it may well be that you have an existing corridor, you can't upgrade that corridor and you can't actually meet the new demands that are coming, whether that's EVs or building electrification or other electrification sources like large industrial users, maybe that you, you actually can't serve them with any other technology. Um, and that puts us in a really good position to play a key partnership role in deploying those lines, either as a technology provider or even further towards a project partner. I understand one of the biggest advantages of Vue and the technology you all have developed is the ability to expand those existing rights of way and not having to get new ones and how challenging that is. How much of our transmission needs do you think can be filled through expanding existing rights of way versus new greenfield transmission? That's a fantastic question. And I really wish I had a really good answer. It's a study that we have been wanting to do and wanting to find partners to work on for a number of years now. And it's going to be quite complex to study that because it really depends on the structure of the existing transmission networks. Transmission at the end of the day is a mesh network problem. And so it's not as easy as saying, I'm going to swap a single line for something that has higher capacity that actually redistributes the way that powers are flowing throughout the rest of the system. And so we need to do that study. I think it's super important to do it. We haven't been able to find a way to quantify that yet, uh, but I, I suspect a, a very large portion of the new needs that we have could actually be unlocked by fully extracting potential capacity, especially with a technology like ours that can offer five times the amount of power through the same right-of-way space. I'd be curious, you know, there's work that's being done, like Morgan Putnam at NGI Consulting has been looking into next generation highways. So not just in transmission right-of-ways, but also rail right-of-ways, road right-of-ways, highways that can be repurposed potentially for adding transmission lines in. It seems like this is another area where you could have not exactly greenfield stuff, but things that would very well suit what you guys are doing. That's exactly right. I think we really need to look at all of the different possible right-of-ways we can use for energy infrastructure in the future, which might include things like pipelines, right? Could include highways or adjacent to highway right-of-ways. 
if we really need to increase the scale of the overall transmission network two to three X, it's only going to become harder and harder to convince folks to build that many more new right-of-ways. And, you know, unfortunately, there historically really hasn't been a huge focus on the land use and right-of-way impact of new transmission. A lot of studies of transmission capacity and new transmission needs talk about the megawatts that are required between point A and point B. They often model those megawatts as an increase in capacity on existing lines. It's a, a simple, fast way to model changes to the grid. Very few studies then try to back out of that and say, well, we said we need another 6,000 megawatts between this point and this other point in the grid. And that practically requires X number of new transmission lines and 300 feet of new right-of-way laying over a linear distance of 300 miles. And I think if we did more work trying to really quantify those right-of-way impacts a lot more, people are going to realize the scale of the challenge that's in front of us because new right-of-ways for high, high voltage towers are really, really hard. In terms of those studies that need to be done and just the amount of planning that needs to happen for all of this to be built, what is your coordination at this point with different government agencies at the federal level or the state level? What are the conversations that we've been able to have on that front so far? Well, I think it's interesting to see how much interest transmission has generated in the last couple of years. Arguably, when we started the company, even just two and a half years ago, transmission was still a little bit of a backwater. You know, it was still not an area that everybody was on board with is super important for the future. And it was definitely not something that was capturing headlines, you know, beyond those of, that have always been in the industry and have always been involved in transmission and read the, you know, the trade press that caters to transmission professionals. That has totally changed in the last two years. And I think transmission is now... Thankfully, it's much more in the headlines. People are really realizing the challenges of grid deployment. You see this in the bills that are coming out of Congress. You see this in a lot of the activity at DOE, the grid deployment office, a lot of the transmission facilitation efforts now that are starting to take center stage in a lot of that work. And so that increased interest means that there's a, a lot of people who are very interested in, the, in these issues now. And we've been increasingly inserting ourselves into those conversations and trying to collaborate with the full range of stakeholders who are involved in thinking through and, and planning future transmission. Let's be clear that this is a complex marketplace with a lot of stakeholders and a lot of different business models, a lot of interests. It is a very complex market. It's going to require a tremendous amount of collaboration, including on the part of vendors like ourselves. And hopefully on the elected representatives, I saw you guys say Catherine Clark yesterday, your congressman was at your guys' facility. Is that right? That's right. We were super excited to welcome Catherine Clark and give her a tour through our labs and give her a sense of the technology that we're building here. And she was a fantastic visitor for us and is a fantastic champion for, for energy. So it's exciting to hear this greater interest in the policy community and in the planning community about thinking seriously about the transmission expansion needs. You've been on the, the venture and financing side, both as a government funding basic research at RPE and then also with Breakthrough as well. How do you feel the financing and innovation environment is right now for transmission and other areas, these long-term hard tech sectors for the clean transition? Is it where we need to be and what do we need to do to get it there? So the financing landscape for clean technology startups, especially those focusing on hardware, has improved dramatically in the last five years. 
right? I think when we were at RPE, we were, we were always worried about what happens after RPE and what's, what's the source of that next round of funding in the early stage research, especially for technologies that are going to take a really long time to make it to market, which is true, by the way, of A, anything that operates at the incredible scale of energy infrastructure and B, anything that impacts or touches on a safety critical industry of which the grid is absolutely there, right? I mean, the requirements for new clean energy technologies and especially those technologies that are, that are related to the grid, safety is always and forever going to be number one. Reliability is always going to be right there as well, right? And so the bar for proving performance and reliability and lifetime is extremely high, which creates a slower adoption than you would see in a lot of other industries. It is a truly massive market. So thankfully, because of the scale of the market potential, there are investors who have stepped to the plate in the last couple of years. There's a lot more money flowing into early stage technology startups like ours that are solving really hard hardware related problems related to climate and energy, including the grid. And I'd say, you know, one of the interesting things that was a clear observation from my time at Breakthrough was we think the grid is really hard. We think that utilities struggle to adopt new technologies quickly, mostly because of those concerns around safety and reliability. But you know what? The aerospace industry is very similar. The industrial, you know, steel making and cement making plants are very similar. The buildings community is very similar. Like all of these industrial sectors, all these areas of clean energy have a lot of the same dynamics to them. And so the grid is not all that different. It's not all that much harder. It's an area that people may understand a little less. And so it looks a little bit more foreign in terms of what's the business model and how do you break in, that sort of thing. So I think, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of funding and investment that has shown up. Is it enough? Almost certainly not. We're not on the path to achieving the decarbonization goals today that we need to achieve. And we still need to fight for every single way we can accelerate progress. And there's a need for a tremendous additional amount of innovation in transmission and other sectors to really make sure that we're on that path to decarbonize the way that we really want to as fast as we really need to mitigate the worst possible outcomes from climate change. So the early stage investment interest is there and there's a lot of dollars, right? A big challenge that remains is always going to be the adoption challenge. And a lot of startups in the grid sector in particular, historically, have struggled with having to do an, an unending number of similar pilots, death by pilot. And you do one pilot after another pilot after another pilot, and it really is very difficult to prove the technology and scale. Fortunately, for grid technologies, once something is proven, it actually does catch on really fast and it spreads really fast. Once you get over that initial barrier, there is the ability to scale really fast on a global basis because utilities are inherently collaborative, right? The, the folks who build the grid and, and operate the grid at the end of the day are very collaborative. It's an extremely collaborative community. And so they do share results. They do trust each other more than you would see in some other industries. But there is this open question of how do you get there? Right? How do you deploy the first couple projects? How do you finance the first couple projects? And how do you build and design those deployments to be things that you can really share widely and build that confidence as fast as possible? This is something we think a lot about at Veer, and it's something that we will face in the coming years, and we will try to get there as fast as we can.
And what do you think is the answer to that in terms of how you finance those first few projects? You've worked across a lot of different roles in the sector. So you've been on the government side funding things. You've been on the private side funding things. And then as a founder, what do you see as the answer to that? There is no one answer. There is no silver bullet to how you do this. Again, it comes back to a lot of collaboration on a lot of different parties. So in all likelihood, there is a role for government to help to pay for some of the, the risk or the perceived risk of early pilots and demonstration projects and to ensure the widespread dissemination of the results and the learnings from those projects. There's going to be a need for pilots and demonstrations being driven by R&D departments and innovation departments at utilities and transmission developers and generation developers. That's absolutely a piece of it. I think what we really need to focus on is always having that strategic intent with any deployment that we do. So we're not doing a, a pilot for pilot's sake, but we're doing a pilot to answer a very specific set of questions with an eye towards a very specific set of projects and deployments that come after that. And that it, it isn't just to do a deployment of a technology for curiosity's sake, but it's, we have a burning desire to build a project and we really, really need to build that project. We think this technology is the linchpin that allows us to build that project. We can't build that project without having first kicked the tires on the technology. That's fine. Let's build the pilot. Let's get a year's worth of operating experience. Let's really run it through its paces. But we'll do that knowing that there's a really, really big urgent problem standing behind that. And that may be use case driven. It may be geography driven. So, you know, I think we're going to think really hard about where and in what context and at what scale do we do those initial pilots to really be able to go as quickly as possible from, you know, a, an early demonstration to fully commercial projects based on the urgency of the need, right? And really it comes down to the urgency of the need. When there's a project out there that is, could be super profitable for somebody, but they simply cannot solve that problem because they can't do it with conventional technology. Those are the types of projects we, we really are going to focus on. That makes sense. And in terms of that urgency, how long do you think it will take to scale and have these technologies catch on and be able to be deployed? We need to do pilots and get permitting and probably after a pilot, change some things and do maybe another pilot. And the need is really urgent and time sensitive. How will that sequencing affect the timeline? What do you think that's going to look like? It's a really good question. What we know we can't do is wait until we've got three years of operating experience in a field deployment prior to the point where we start to book and start planning and doing engineering for specific projects. That would be way too slow, right? And so we have built our technology development plan on the back of a series of demonstrations at increasing scale and complexity. The first couple of demonstrations are on our own facilities. So we actually have an outdoor test site about 10 minutes from our headquarters up here in Massachusetts. And that's a place where we're going to install 35 kV class distribution poles. And we're actually going to stage a demonstration of our cryogenic components at low voltage in that environment to start to gain that experience and that track record of deploying and operating equipment outdoors at height in what starts to look like a real utility line. And we will continue to increase the complexity, the voltage, the power level of those demonstrations in the next couple of years while also focusing a lot on 
industry standard testing. So there's a lot of industry standards that exist for utility equipment, for transmission conductors, for superconducting transmission. And we'll start to check those boxes and really go through a lot of that testing to ensure that we have met all of those industry requirements as early as possible. And at that point, it is going to take some partners who are going to see the ultimate value of what we're producing and who are willing to start to work with us on specific projects while we continue to prove out the technology. And there's no expectation that anybody is going to deploy our product prior to the point where it is fully proven and that we know it, A, doesn't pose any safety concerns and also doesn't have any obvious reliability problems as well. One one thing that hearing you're thinking about this next stage and this evolution has me thinking about is the big legislation that just passed recently, the IRA, and the various incentives for clean tech expansion in clean tech deployment that have come out of it. What are you guys seeing for the transmission sector there? Is there anything relevant for Veer or for the sector more broadly in accelerating the deployment of some of these technologies we need to address these challenges? So the first reaction is this is going to supercharge efforts around decarbonization and renewable deployment all over the country, right? So those projects are going to be accelerated. We're going to see a tremendous amount of additional growth on both the generation and the use side. And all of that additional deployment will drive transmission, right? So independent of anything that is very specific and targeted to transmission, and there are there is a lot in the bill that, that really directly impacts transmission as well, but that broader general industry trend of acceleration towards renewables and lower carbon will drive a tremendous amount of transmission. So we're super excited about what that's going to mean. We're still analyzing the bits and pieces of exactly what's in and is not and when it will impact a company like ours. And a lot of it will also come down to the specific program designs that are to come and how these things are executed, right? A lot of programs like this, it really depends on how the Department of Energy and other agencies set up these programs. Awesome. For you in starting and launching this company, what are the successes so far that you've done most proud of? The team that we've built. I, uh, you know, if I look back over the first two and a half years, the thing that I'm personally most excited about is the quality of the team and the culture that we've built at Veer. This is a team we've grown from four when we started to 18 now. And we're anticipating a lot more growth in the next couple of years. But we have built this incredible team with an interdisciplinary focus. You know, we've got experts in power systems and project deployment and cryogenics and high temperature superconductors and power products, high voltage. I mean, it's this incredible mix of talents that have all come together with a singular mission. And it's just an awesome environment, right? It's just, it's an absolute joy to come to work every day with these amazing colleagues that we've been able to find and recruit and bring us along this journey. So super excited about that. And, you know, and and that's really the team and the people involved in early stage startups really make the success. And that is something that you see across all successful companies. And so it's something that we've spent a tremendous amount of time focusing on. It's a great segue for my next question. We have a lot of students at Wharton who are very excited about private tech and want to use their talents to work on these problems. Where do you see the need for MBA talent in the sector, transmission specifically and climate tech generally? And then particularly if you could comment on the need for funders versus founders 
at Wharton, a lot of people have a lot of interest in BC, and there is a little bit less interest in terms of how many people want to start transmission companies. A lot of that was because most people here don't have PhDs in engineering from MIT, and the barrier to entry there feels high. So I'd love to hear your advice for where Wharton MBAs can plug in. So it's a really good question. I hope that can be helpful. You know, I, I remember back to the time that I was at MIT in the depth of my PhD. And some of my most memorable experiences from that time was being involved in the MIT energy community and the student community, which was a large mix of MBAs at Sloan and, and PhDs and undergraduates at MIT. And I still have a lot of MBA friends from that time. They're great friends. And I really, really value those relationships. There's a lot of potential for MBAs in this sector, right? I mean, a lot of the questions around business model, financing of first projects, like first of a kind project finance, how do you form those partnerships between small companies and large companies? I mean, we can't do this alone. And ultimately our success is going to depend on the quality of the partnerships that we can form, which really requires super super sophisticated thinking about how do you structure those partnerships? What's the right way to think about what's the sequencing and the timing and the scale and the financing structures that you put behind that? I think you're going to see a lot of joint ventures between different types of companies in this space. It's going to take a lot of expertise that, you know, a lot of MBAs have and will have, right? In terms of the, the founder versus funder, I mean, that, that's an eternal question, right? I am very fortunate. Uh, that I've been able to have some experience on both sides of that equation. Yeah, they're both amazing jobs. And I've been super fortunate in my, in my career so far to have the experiences that I have had. You know, I really strongly would encourage folks to try to find the opportunity to get in the trenches and become a founder or join an early stage startup to gain that experience. I mean, the, the experience that you gain in making it up as you go and, and, and being there from the beginning is something you just can't gain any other way. And even if you ultimately end up being on the, on the investment side, experience as a founder is going to give you a different perspective. That's certainly my case. If I were to end up as an investor again, later in my career, even just after two and a half years being at Veer, right? I would be a far better investor and would come at it with a far different set of perspectives on what's important and not important in an early stage startup, right? What to focus on? What are the things you really want to drill in on? And what are the things that, well, you know what, the team's going to solve that, even if it looks insurmountable today. So, you know, that's an experience that, that's super important for folks. And so go find that PhD or go find that master's student who has a brilliant technology or a faculty member that has a brilliant technology, but you know, doesn't have the perspective and the experience of how would I start a business around this? How would I go do that? Or frankly, doesn't have the interest, right? I mean, there's a lot of folks on the technology side who really love their technology and really want to be in the lab. And that's where they are. That's where their passion lies. And that's where they really are most effective and want to be. And they're always looking for business oriented co-founders to partner with and start things with. And so I would be mining the depths of all the universities that they're part of and their networks to try to find those opportunities. It's good to good to sort of see the ways in which the PhDs can also be a part of it as one who's in the middle of that, though I don't think on the technical side. Thank you so much for making the time that you've made today. And thank you for sharing those things. Is there anything else that you'd like to add also before closing? No, just thank you for the opportunity. And 
I guess I have to end with my plug of Vera is constantly hiring. So we're looking for fantastic candidates, especially on the engineering side, but ultimately on the business side as well. So please reach out to us and find us. You can find me on LinkedIn and the Vera website and everything else. I'm happy to chat with folks. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. We'll be excited to hear more updates of how Vera keeps evolving. That's our show for today. Thanks again to our guest, Tim Heidel, for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Veer, as he said, you can visit veir.com. And as for us, well, if you like this episode, do spread the good word online. We're on Instagram and LinkedIn at Wharton Current and Twitter at Wharton Current. So you can like and follow there. This has been Ned for the Wharton Current and look forward to seeing you again next time.